Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's Nerdist Writers Panel was recorded at ATX Television Festival in Austin. That's Austin's best television festival. No offense, none taken. Uh, badges are already on sale for next year's festival, and I know they have some amazing things being cooked up. Uh, it'll be hard to top this year's festival, which boasted screenings and guests from Orange is the New Black and The Strain and Fargo and kind of everything great, uh, Andy Daly's review, all kinds of terrific things. Um, but they are going to indeed try to top it, and there's going to be lots of cool stuff next year, uh, starting on June 4th, I believe. Go to atxfestival.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. Uh, we're going to start with David Madden. He is the president of Fox TV Studios. David, come on up. Next up, we have Liz uh, Tiglar. I hope that's right. Uh, <laughs> and she has written on many of your favorite shows, Nashville, Once Upon a Time, Brothers and Sisters, currently working on Bates Motel, really great show, and also the creator of Life Unexpected, Liz Tiglar. <laughs> Uh, next, we have Mark Johnson. He is a producer of many, 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 many films, including the Oscar-winning Rain Man. Look up his film resume sometime. It's seriously impressive. On television, he's done such shows as Rectify, terrific show, uh, the upcoming Battle Creek, the just-started Halt and Catch Fire, and a show you may have heard of called Breaking Bad. Uh, Mark Johnson. Now we have uh, Brian Seabury. He is the Vice President of Drama Development at CBS. And finally, the patron saint of the Austin Television Festival, uh, Mr. Kyle Killen, creator of Lone Star Awake and Mind Games. So uh, I want to start by talking about the, the world of drama on television right now. Just real briefly, right down the line, you only get to name one. What's your favorite drama on right now that you do not work on or have on your network in some capacity? I don't mean to be a cliche, but I probably have to say Game of Thrones. Okay. Orange is the New Black. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll come right, right after you. You've got the microphone. Fargo. Fargo right now, yeah. Cool. Can I have a tie? No. Okay. I still got to go with Mad Men. Okay. Um, and even though it's off uh, uh, True Detective, can I awesome. do that? Awesome. So we have a really rich range of shows there. It really speaks to the wonderful uh, depth of TV drama right now. Um, when I talk to people who are really into TV, especially younger people, they sort of tend to think that The Sopranos is when like TV drama started, and before that was all Kojak and Mannix running around in trench coats or whatever, sucking on lollipops. Um, I am wondering if there are shows before The Sopranos that you all think are really important touchstones for the medium of dramatic television that, that people should be getting caught up on. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll start talking. Uh, I mean, uh, for me, 
ER was sort of my seminal experience with uh, television drama, and in a way, having done it now, it's more impressive because they were cranking out 22 of those a year, and they were all at an incredibly high level, and I was... it was an episodic show that I was deeply involved in the serialized nature of. Like, it kind of does everything that, uh, that I've aspired to. Like, I just haven't figured out how they did it. It's really impressive. And so I think, you know, The Sopranos and all these, the, the idea of, uh, you know, television as novels is, has ushered in sort of this golden age of amazing dramatic television. I just think it's crazy that they were doing that before that was supposed to be the level that you had to be at. Sure. Oh, oh, uh. <laughs> oh thank you. <laughs> Mr. President. <laughs> I guess the one that springs to mind for me is Moonlighting. Um, that was, that was mind-blowing for me even at a young age. I was watching these two people. I was watching almost like a, an invented language, um, a tone, a uh, a pace that I had never seen before. I just knew that I loved it, and I was racing to watch it every every week, every bit of it. The serialized stuff, the you know, will they, won't they, the case, all of it. It just felt like it was incredibly special and just stuck out in a really unique way. I I think there's several shows that just at the time because I was younger and I just thought they seemed so seamless and I never talked them, thought of them so much as oh this is great writing but everything from the you know the X-Files to MASH to anything with James Garner it just they were really well written some of them are comedy some of them drama but it's it was really entertaining enjoyable television I loved Little House on the Prairie like <laughs> still <laughs> could reenact scenes loved it I mean for me I used to watch it after school at 5 o'clock every day, and um, I don't know. In a weird way, it kind of taught me storytelling and also a good lesson in adaptation from the books. (laughs) Well, I I was kind of like one of those younger guys who didn't really get uh, into TV until The Sopranos. I was a feature person through the 80s and 90s and didn't actually watch a lot of television, so when you ask that question, I date myself. The shows I think of are Twilight Zone and Star Trek, which to me are, are two shows that I always come back to as shows that actually tried to explore deeper philosophical things within the context of half-hour hour drama. So those are the two I go back to. Okay, absolutely. So just, uh, you know, briefly, what are the things you can do now that you couldn't do then, not even in terms of content? Like, we all know cable lets you do more violence, uh, sexual content, things like that. What is the audience more prepared to accept now in terms of storytelling and dramas than they were even 10 years ago? Well, it's funny. I was just talking about, we were just talking about this in the bar. Um, But um, the idea, I think so many people are gravitating toward cable now in a way. And I I think kind of instinctively you're saying like, oh, I want to, at least I can say myself, like, oh, I want to write for cable because you can, not that I'm in any way a violent or edgy person, but like you could be more violent, you could be more edgy, you could say fuck, you could da-da-da. And it feels enticing, but when you really look at story structure, I mean, I've broken down episodes of Breaking Bad, I've broken down episodes of Vampire Diaries, and on some level there's a story structure that I think um, can be similar in network and cable. For me, I think where cable becomes more exciting and it would be nice if we were able to do it in network too, is that um, 
characters don't have to be so likable all the time. And your protagonist can also be kind of, and, and this is something that made Bates such a joy, an unreliable narrator. And you kind of don't know what's true and you don't, you don't know what's real. And it's kind of real life where everybody's perspective informs the truth. And it doesn't all have to be wrapped up in a bow at the end of 42 minutes. And you don't have to feel good about your hero necessarily. And I think that's, that's where Cable becomes kind of more exciting and enticing sometimes. I think just in the brief time that I've been doing television, there's just been this enormous swing from when I started to now towards serialization. Like when I started, you needed, when you were pitching a show, to reassure them constantly that these episodes could air out of order, that there was going to be a beginning, middle, and end to all of them, and you could follow it. And it was all based on this idea that, you know, the holy grail was to get 100 episodes and then sell it into syndication, and somebody would put it on at random times, and anybody could sit down and watch any episode. And everything has swung towards the idea of streaming and binge-watching, and, you know, now the holy grail is sort of, you sell that to Netflix, or you have, you know, you can exploit it in a way like a book that you sell off the chapters of. So... This idea that you're really telling a story through a season, I think, is really exciting for writers and creators and is now kind of what you're being... That's, that's what they want to hear when you're pitching it more than how you know, we can make an infinite number of these. You know, I, our first show was a show called The Shield where we sort of had the glee of, of oh, my God, we can kill the hero in the fir- or the purported hero in the first episode and then tell seven years more of story. And there was that sort of wow, we're out in the schoolyard and we can do anything. Now I think actually it's a much harder challenge because you can do anything. And, and in the post-Breaking Bad universe where we've seen all these characters go through so many dark places and we've, somebody, certainly nobody's afraid in Cable to have an unlikable character. So I think now the challenge is just how do you get to something new and truer? And you mentioned Orange is the New Black. I think that's a show that finds a really miraculous tone and finds a way to tell an hour drama that's still funny and crazy and moving and... So I, I think that it's, it's actually a harder challenge now because now, now we can say fuck and, and do all these crazy things and we can have wildly unlikable characters, but how do you then take the next step? So I think it's actually a much more challenging time. Sure. Sure. Uh, I can speak to the, the broadcast side of it a little bit since we talked about cable. I think we've also had a bit of a, an evolution and maybe 15 years ago the good wife would have been kind of all legal case and a little bit of, of grace notes as far as the personal life. And now, of course, you know, we consider it a serialized show. Yeah, it has a case every week, but the case isn't just kind of a throwaway legal case. It's used to bring up and they pick their cases incredibly carefully and it's used to bring up issues that probably Alicia's going through or somebody else. They're, they're used for a really important reason. And also, you know, the Kings have spoken about this much better than I, the creators of The Good Wife, but the case has allowed them to slow down a little bit of the, of the serialized storytelling. They have another place to go each week, so they don't have to take these characters so fast, so far, and it's not the only place they have to go for story, and frankly, maybe works even a little bit more true to life. So uh, they certainly have had a tremendous amount of success on broadcast and telling a really character-driven story. Sure. Uh, I think in... Uh to spin off what everyone said, one of the one of the great things, certainly in in cable, is quite frankly, is viewership loyalty. That you know, I used to hear that a a a 
a fan of a network show would watch on an average one out of every four shows, and that was considered somebody who watched on a regular basis. On cable shows, you don't miss a single episode. It's all it's a compact that we, you know, the the filmmakers have made with the audience, and whether or not it's you know, no matter how far it. It, it pushes the narrative. There is a an understanding that your your loyal viewers have watched everything that you you put in front put in front of them, and in the order that was meant to go. And I think, as I say, it's a compact, so that, that there are certain expectations and and rules that you have to follow in order to satisfy that audience. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about antiheroes already, but I wanted to to jump to that. Um, John Landgraf, the president of FX. Uh, said a, a couple of years ago that after Walter White, he wasn't sure there was anywhere to go with the antihero for a while. Um, and certainly, I think there are shows like Rectify, like Orange is the New Black, um, even like The Americans or Bates Motel, where the people may be doing bad things, but we're much more invested in them, in the good sides of them. Have you uh, sort of felt that as writers and, and executives uh, in, in the industry? I think... Uh... <laughs> I feel like there was sort of a an anti-hero explosion that, you know, we talked yesterday about sort of an effort to reverse engineer things that were successful, and I feel like that's a little bit what happened with kind of the anti-hero model. It was like, you know, the lead of everything was sort of tainted or dark or problematic in some way, and it's not that that, I think, is a, a bad idea or a dead idea. I think that they felt like copies of copies of copies. So some of the shows that you referenced, I think, feel like new, original, fresh takes on that. And I think that is, that, that's what it's going to require to sort of go back to that well. But I think we've just reached a place where it's just not novel anymore to be evil. It's like, well, I saw that and I saw it as, you, can, you can't be more evil than Walter White was. So it is, it's totally true. Where do you go from there? No, that's, that's true. Walter White and Don Draper and Tony Soprano have sort of mined that pretty, pretty deeply. So I think the challenge is probably, rather than the, the dark sides of, the, uh, of our protagonists, what are, what are those, those, those slivers of, of hope and, and, and altruism? I think that that's one of the things that has been so, in a way, kind of beautiful about Bates Motel is you take the character. I mean, both Norman and Norma, we were talking about it on the panel with Carrie and Carlton yesterday. Those aren't characters who, likable wouldn't be the first word you would use to describe those characters as kind of portrayed or embodied in the movie. And um, somehow what Carrie and Carlton have done is made them kind of so beautiful and human, and real, and compelling, and accessible, and you know how this story is going to end, and Carrie was talking about it yesterday, you know, that Norma in the movie kind of feels like she's kind of the shrew who's braided her son into becoming this person, and in the show, it's a, it's a different approach, it's like she's loved her son to death, <laughs> you know, and that's such a more... Um, it's 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 a really sweet reason to turn somebody into who they become, <laughs> even though I mean obviously it doesn't really work out well. Um, so so you, I, hate, you hate the movie? And and no no, <laughs> I hate the movie. No, I just love the show. And um, and I, there's somehow I, I would never have thought I could fall in love with the character of Norma Bates so fully, but somehow the embodiment of really Carrie's voice and Vera's portrayal makes you just feel for her, and she's just 
a simple person who wants a happy life and can't seem to get it. And there's something in that that I think is super at the core, kind of relatable to all of us. So, Yeah, I think I was just going to say, on, um, I think it's a good question. On the, on the Americans, when we were in the early stages of developing that, we sort of fell in love with the glee of, hey, the Russian spies are the good guys and the Americans are the bad guys. And isn't it fun to play that uh, inversion, especially in, in Reaganite America? And you know, it's particularly charged now with what's been going on in the Ukraine, et cetera. But in those early stages, the show was kind of stayed on one level, and I think where the show started to really work for all of us, including John, was when we really plunged into the fact that the show was really about a marriage, and it's really about trust issues in a marriage, and yes, it's set in this hyperbolic framework where everything is, is heightened, but really in every marriage or in every relationship, you wear certain masks, and you wear certain disguises, and you don't always tell every single bit of the truth to, your, to the person on the other side of the relationship, and the Americans just became a prism to explore that, and that's where the show went past, is it an anti-hero or not an anti-hero, or a pair of anti-heroes, but just went to sort of its, its, its exploration of every human condition. Um, I, I'll, I'll direct this one at Brian first, but anyone else can chime in. Um, obviously, uh, CBS still does mostly dramas that do 22 to 24 episodes a year. Um, how does that affect their storytelling model? Because you do have quite a few really great shows that are making that many episodes every year. Yeah, the good news is that of late we've been able to adjust if the storytelling kind of mandates it. So last year we did a show called Hostages. They were, you know, Bruckheimer and Warner Brothers, knowing where they sold the show, you know, said, look, we can do 22 of these. We think we can tell a better first season in in fewer. And so we were able to do that. We were able to put it on as, as a planned 15, 15 episodes, and then we put another show on in that time slot. And that's something that could only happen recently because of the economics that are really boring and I won't go into. Um, and then, you know, when the scripper Under the Dome came to us last year, that felt like, that just, 22 does not, it doesn't feel like I'm, that feels like too long of a meal per season. And we looked at the summer and felt like, gosh, cable has been dominating the summer. Why can't we put something on original? And um, we, we ordered that for 13, put it on, um, had great success with it, really happy with it creatively. And we have Extant coming on this summer also for 13. Reckless is on for 13 this summer. So um, while maybe a little trickier in the fall, because you're right, we are still in a traditionally in most of our time slots a 22 to 24 model, if we find a show that we love, we're going to find a way to get it on the air, even if it, even if the storytelling mandates maybe a shorter order. Right. Um, Liz, you've worked on a number of, of 22 episode shows and a number of you know 10, 13 episode shows. What's what's different about the writing process in, in those two environments? Well, I think working on 13 episodes just feels so much more humane in, a, in, in the world of you can really you know. On any show, no matter what, you start the season, obviously with really high hopes and aspirations for kind of having an initial meeting, talking for a couple weeks, and kind of a tent-pulley season arc way where you arc out the season, you talk about kind of where you want the characters emotionally to go, um, and then the kind of tent pulls that you'll hit and getting them there. And Sorry, my voice is so trash. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm just squeak. I'm like um, Peter Brady going through puberty. Um, and I think... Um, I think that what ends up happening with a 22 show, in my experience, when I've worked on shows that are 10 to 13, you kind of have that arc and set those temples, and you're pretty much able to honor them. Like, as you go through the season, maybe there's a few little tweaks, but in general, it, it, what you did at the beginning kind of is where you are at the end. 
what happens in 22 is I think there sometimes can be a little bigger of a panic because it's, you know, it can be 22, but you, um, you start pulling everything up because you start running out of story or something doesn't work. And you're like, oh, that wedding we're building toward in 22. What if it was nine? And you're like, oh, they could get, and you suddenly you're like, oh, sure, the wedding's nine. And then you're like, oh my God, <laughs> what's the next? However many. Um, and so I think that that can kind of be what happens. And, and usually my experience with 13 is that by the time you hit 13, you know, you start, you start in a writer's room, you're writing the scripts from a showrunner perspective, and you're like, okay, I've kind of gotten that down. And then you're like, okay, now production starts. So now that, and then you're like, oh no, there's post. And so now that starts, and it becomes this kind of panicked assembly line where you have all these things to do. I feel like 13, usually you can kind of stay on schedule with it. But by the time you hit 22, sometimes what can happen in my experience is that you you're, you feel so behind that you don't get to really say, like, what's the best arc or how are we crafting the best story or how are we taking our time with this? Instead, you're like, okay, they're getting married and the bridge is falling and we need an act break and we need a, a you know, 13 cliffhanger because then we're off the air for nine weeks. And then, you know, it just kind of can become an unwieldy thing. So it kind of s- smaller chunks, I think, can be great. That's not to say that there are plenty of people, The Good Wife, a great example of people who execute 22 really, really well. So it's not impossible. Criminal Minds, Erica Messer does an amazing job with that show. Um, I think that 22 can be done well, but it, it lends itself to being more of a well-oiled machine. And I think when you're in the first season of a show, you're finding it, so it's hard. Do you all find that drama is more conducive to those smaller orders than comedy? Because it seems like comedy can do 24, 25 and have lots of great episodes in that mix. I was going to point out that, that uh, The Good Wife and CBS very wisely in their Emmy campaign right now mm-hmm. are pointing out, yeah. you know, big deal. Breaking Bad does 10 episodes and they want to get patted on the back and Mad Men does 11 or 12. We do 22, you know. Take, take, take that. And it's true. You know, they do 22 great episodes a season. Not bad. But Brian, do those shows have larger staffs? Like that was what I always, I would look around at the people and I'd be like, you know, we'd all die if we tried to do 22 of these. And I had, you know, people who worked on ER and they would say that is the difference. You know, I had a fall script and a spring script and that was my world. I had to make two scripts amazing in a year. And when you think about it that way, it's possible. But I've never had... A staff of that size. It was like, you know, if we did 22, I need you guys to write 21 of them. <laughs> and I mean, it just, it, is, that, is that how they cope? I have no idea. All right. We had a no, really, I Brothers and Sisters was a really big Brothers staff. It was like 15 staff. people. Yeah. And it is, it becomes this assembly line where people are out of the room. I mean, sometimes, especially when you're a lower level writer, you go to break your story and it's you and the writer's assistant because someone's on set, so two people are writing, to, you know, everyone, someone's in their outline process and it's like you and the writer's assistant and you're like, so what should we do? Yeah, the, um, yeah, the, not panicking. <laughs> yeah, the days of the size of the ER staff are, are, pr- are pr- pretty much over. But the broadcast staffs, look, you get to spend your money in a, in, a, in a number of ways. You can go much higher level and you lose a few you lose a few bodies in the room or, you know, maybe a more mid-level staff and get some more. But you're right. When you ha- you, absolutely, if you've got somebody off on set and somebody, you know, two people off to script, you don't have a lot of people in the room to help to help break. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, that showrunner who is kind of your anchor and guiding the ship at the, at, at the front. Can you be an anchor and guide the ship? I think so. Yeah, I think that's how it's usually done. 
Not a big, not a big sailor. I was a coxswain. You're a coxswain. Yeah, you can like weigh it down, yet steer it. When you're when you're going through, you know, Rob Doherty on on Elementary, the guy has an absolute vision for that show. You know, his staff his staff is incredibly important to him. But you can, no matter how few of you are in the room, you're always going to be looking to him. For you know, keeping the keeping the ship pointed right and keep those trains running on time. Ships trains keep the trains running on time. Um, when you get into, of course, real trouble is when maybe the vision isn't quite there. You had a vision for say eight or nine of that season, and you think you'll figure it out, and then you're you're in pretty big trouble with a, a small room and not sure where to go for the the last twelve of your order. Do you think what also um, sometimes with the smaller shows, like I've noticed this with. Bates and on Astronaut Wives Club now, um, you have more of a prep time. Like on Bates, we had almost all of the scripts for season two, you know, at least two thirds written by the time we started shooting. Where sometimes my experience on network shows is, you know, pilots get picked up mid May, you're starting the room June 1st. By the end of June, beginning of July, you have to have the first script for prep. So it's like you're already starting almost two months behind. Usually writers have such a small lead time and you're trying to find the show, talk about arcs and tent poles, but you don't even get time to do that because you're like, oh, we need to already have episode one broken. So I think, or two, whatever. I think it's a, it's a huge deal, absolutely. And you're seeing hiatuses on returning shows are smaller. And so I know Jonah Nolan on Person of Interest, I think the guy took like a week off and was right back. It, all in an effort of course, to make his show the best it could be. And what he learned through two seasons is I've got to try to find a way to get ahead. Um, but I think it's a really big deal and, and makes part, part of what makes, only part of what makes the 22 to 24 challenging. Are there any of those David Kellys around anymore who would write, write every single episode of a 20-some-odd season? There are definitely showrunners where every episode is certainly going through their computer some in a much larger but way. But you know the it. price of that for David and Aaron or, you know is yeah. that is you had their voice exploded off the page and then that's where their involvement in the show ended. And even you know Monk had a very similar price. It's like the producing director created did everything after that. You know so I think there are those people who can write everything but I think when you think of what you ask of a showrunner to run the show the writing is only one component of it. I, I don't know how you could write every episode, edit every episode, be present on set for every. It's like it's just an inhuman amount of work. It's just lean it I'm down just really trying day. to get that to not happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, David, uh, the, coming from the studio side, it seems like everybody is jumping into the pool in terms of putting content on the air now. Um, when you are coming up with ideas for these shows, for, for dramas especially, like do you target them towards certain outlets, or do you have the uh, do you have the idea and then eventually think this might be an FX show, this might be a Fox show, this might be a I don't know, Oxygen Network show? Well, first of all, rarely do do I or my colleagues quote have the idea. Usually, an idea is brought to us. Um, the, the occasions where we've had ideas, those are usually like the big <laughs> failures. Um, <laughs> I won't name names. Uh, but, uh, no, I, I, th- I think when a show comes to us, and we really traffic uh, 99% in the cable universe. We're not really in the broadcast universe. But there is such a gamut now of, of not only cable networks, but digital platforms, Netflix, somewhere, uh, Amazon, Hulu, et cetera. So there's probably, I mean, we don't, there are a number of networks that we 
can't sell to for deal reasons, and still there's probably 20 different places we can go. Uh, so we, when we are looking at an idea, I mean, we do it, we do actually do a fair bit of internal development. We'll commission scripts, we'll write them internally, see what the script then tells us about, about where that script belongs. Sometimes an idea comes in, you sort of naturally think, oh, this is a slam dunk for FX or AMC or HBO or someplace. And sometimes you don't really know until you develop the material. And so we kind of do 50-50 in terms of that. And, and then obviously there are many things we develop we don't sell. Um, uh, we fail. Uh, but there are many things also that we've gone out with and we've had more than one person interested. And then we've had uh, the luxury of trying to figure out where the best home was for something. So we'll- and, what dictates if you write it internally or if you take it out as a pitch? It's really subjective. It's a good question. Uh, I mean, I think if... <laughs> Thank you. Thank um, you. <laughs> you. You can keep doing this. No, I, I think if it feels easy, if it feels like, oh, it's a writer who I know that four places really love this writer and it's a very easy pitch, we'll probably pitch it. If it's a writer who's less known, if it's a writer who we're willing to take the flyer with, but maybe the writer isn't that proven or maybe it's just a harder idea to pitch. I mean, and there are times when we've pitched things, failed, said, we like it anyway, commissioned the script, and then we sold it as a finished script. So, so sometimes we actually do both. Um, uh, Mark, you, uh, with Breaking Bad, had a huge success in Netflix, sort of bringing people to that show. Um, in your experience working on that show, and, and I'm sure some of the rest of you can speak to this, like what, how are people writing toward, directing toward, producing these dramas toward that streaming experience of people binge-watching you know, all the episodes in one night. Well, needless to say, we didn't anticipate that. And, and AMC has, has asked me not to give Netflix too much, uh, too much credit. But uh, they are in competition now. But, yes, it was thanks to Netflix that, that Breaking Bad really became the juggernaut that it became. Because remember, for four seasons, it was that little, little show that could, you know. And, and it had its fans but wasn't doing... You know, particularly well. I, it's it's all new. It's it's. Uh, I'd love to hear what everyone else says to it. I don't know yet. You know, I'm fascinated by these series, these uh, 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 in which um, an entire season is available immediately, and how you know all of a sudden there are ten episodes of of this show or that show. I'm not quite sure what that means to us in terms of the creative process or what your responsibilities are to that audience because there are people who are going to, you know, all of a sudden something you spent close to a year doing, they will have consumed and somehow, you know, digested and, and moved on after two days. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure. I, it's a really good question, but I can't answer it yet. You know, we had a really interesting experience on, on a show that we did called The Killing, which we did for AMC. And... Um, Thank you. Uh, and for the first, you know, it was a, it, the show had an w- incredibly weird ride where everybody was like the show in season one, and then we we pissed a few people off, and we didn't end it on season one the way people wanted us to. And then in season two, the ratings dropped, and AMC canceled the show. And then Netflix, who had who we had sold the show to between seasons one and season two, they came to us and said, "Well, the show's kind of working for us, so can we pay you some more money and get the rights earlier, get an earlier window in the show?" So because Netflix stepped up, we were able to make the show in season three still for AMC, but, but we allowed them to pay a smaller license fee, and Netflix paid a bigger license fee, and that still worked. And then season three, the ratings didn't go up, and they canceled us again. We were canceled twice, and Netflix we went back to Netflix, and they said, well, this show is still kind of working for us, so we are doing our fourth and final season for Netflix, no AMC. It will posted it on August 1st and thank God for Netflix that they allowed us to finish the show in a way that we were all 
really proud of. So it, it, that's, I think, a really interesting example of how a show didn't work for a traditional network but was working for a digital platform. And, and, uh, you know, and just during the course of making that show, the whole MO evolved. Uh, maybe Liz and Kyle can speak to this. How is the, the writing process affected by knowing that people might binge it or by knowing that they'll probably be watching it on DVR and zapping through the commercials? Well, uh, I always assume no one will be watching it. Um, and I've been right. Uh, you know, I, the, I guess it's, it's... I haven't, honestly, I haven't had the luxury of thinking about it in terms of it being streamed or DVR'd. We're, I've always been in a world of commercials and, you know, and I think that's one of the things, I guess is what I really... It's, it's, jarring and confusing but I also really uh, respect it about Mad Men is that it just tells its story you know there uh, and it, again it may just be that I'm not very good but I always found that like trying to create six artificial cliffhangers per 42 minutes is like a pretty like these people must lead crazy lives they're like every six minutes you're like no way it just <laughs> It's a lot to ask of a story. So I think, you know, being released from that and, you know, really just being able to just tell the story, I think, uh, it sounds pretty good. I think I might try that. Yeah, I was going to say, I think I, I haven't really had the luxury of having to worry about that either. But I think it, um, for me, it's less, it doesn't change my writing experience, but it does change your viewing experience in that, um, like, I'm really, like, obviously, Orange is the New Black has premiered while we've been at ATX, and I can't wait to kind of get home and watch it all. And you feel this pressure to kind of watch it all quickly so you can talk about it with people because, you know, people will be watching it and talking about it. Um, but there's something so nice about kind of being able to slow it down and getting to talk about every episode in increments and how the season progresses in the arc rather than having to kind of talk about it, the whole thing, all at once. So I feel like it's changed that a little bit. Um, you don't really get to have those kind of water coolery specific conversations. Um, but it's nice to have access to it quickly and be able to kind of tune in when you want. So I guess there's a balance. I feel like what he was saying about, you know, the killing in Netflix and what Netflix has sort of uncovered is that there's this other layer of viewer like it's always been about appointment television and you know the killing is something that is it's not an appointment at all but it's like that book that's on your nightstand and you are still reading it and when you pick it up you're like oh no I, I do like this book and I eventually recommend it to my friends but even in a you know even in the cable universe where you know the the demands of the ratings and the advertising are less than they are in broadcast something like the killing doesn't get there but for somebody like Netflix where as long as you keep paying to have the book accessible that show works for them and it's this other way that it turns out we can make TV and there are consumers for it um, you mentioned this a, a little bit earlier Brian but we, we were talking about um, how like every show now has some serialized aspect to it pretty much every drama um, does the audience seems more comfortable with that uh, even than they were five, ten years ago. Um, what do you attribute that that rise to then, if it, not necessarily the DVR or the binge-watching? You know, I, I think the audience is always attracted to just great writing, great characters, great writing. And I think that certainly on broadcast for a while, 
yeah, the great writing seemed to be maybe a little bit more in very close-ended storytelling. Maybe they learned lessons from The Sopranos, as, as was brought up today. I don't know where the lessons came from, but, I mean, we're still just attracted to good writing. You know, I mean, we talked about anti-hero. I like... Yeah, I don't think that it's great writing because it has an anti-hero, and I don't think that you know that if you have an anti-hero, it's necessarily great writing. I, I think that you just are drawn to what you're drawn to, and I find myself watching shows on broadcast, on cable, varying degrees of serialization. But again, I don't think that. I don't know. I, I think that people have, have loved television and loved dramas for a long time, and maybe now, more than ever, they're able to really sink their teeth into the characters and explore them throughout seasons, maybe in a way that they haven't been able to. I don't know. I can, I can probably only speak to more recent but TV. It's a lot more difficult in your case because you're... you're, you're uh, because you're... Uh, um, because your loyal viewers aren't watching every episode you so you can only do so much you can't have something something critical happen and have you know a, a third of your viewers have, have completely missed it yeah it's not something you know we don't tell the writers that's not a lesson that gets preached anymore you know i know what you're saying that the, the stat that mark was talking about i think it was if somebody said they are an ER viewer, you know, in in the in the mid '90s, and then Nielsen, I think, figured out they were only watching one out of four. I think now, if you, it's not something that we're telling our showrunners, oh, don't don't put a huge serialized plot point here because then people won't catch up. I think more than ever they have the ability to go to our, you know, on CBS.com. If you're watching Scandal, you go to ABC.com. You can go to the internet and find quite a bit of episodes to catch up and then if it is going to be more like season season long binging that's something that can happen after the season so our broadcast viewers have more access to catch up um, than they ever have before not to mention their DVR so I think the creators are having more leeway than ever before as far as the serialization I would actually take it a step further I think other than Brian's network it's impossible to sell a show that's not serialized. There's just no market for it. I mean, and it's actually the pendulum has swung so far the other way. I mean, for us, it's it's fun to tell a serialized show, and and, and there's great pleasure in doing something that's novelistic in, in length. But but it's almost like a show that is a pure closed-ended show, short of CBS. There's just there's just no place to take it. I'm not sure that pendulum won't swing back a little bit. I mean, I, I feel like we are hitting kind of an extreme of serialization and. Things like Netflix have, have, have accounted for that, but I still think there are there are, can be pleasures for the closed-ended show that can find homes ultimately other than CBS. I was I was just going to ask a variation on that. Do we think there is still room for the the standalone show? Like uh, Louis, this is a terrible example because it's not a drama and it's right now doing a very serialized season. But Louis had long seasons where like no episode had anything to do with each other, and that was. Obviously very influential in comedy, but it seems like drama has really gotten away from do, do we see room to go back to that um, you know that sort of model uh, yeah I mean the comedy you sort of asked that earlier I mean I think comedy lends itself to that in that it's sort of a it's a laugh delivery mechanism, so in a half hour you've either succeeded or failed in your mission. I think you know for years that's why you know cop doctor lawyer was television because those there is a story within the story and it can begin in middle and end and then you know there's some ongoing things that you may or may not follow depending on the degree of serialization but I you know I'm trying to think of what 
a dramatic show without one of those engines would be... I mean, it just it feels like closed-ended drama is a show about somebody doing a job. So that job better have high stakes and be really interesting. And so I think, obviously, I mean, CBS proves there's still huge audiences for people who are interested in predominantly closed-ended shows about people doing those jobs. I just... I think outside of that, I would love to see a family drama. I'd love to see Parenthood that was not serialized. Just every week, I, I just, just to see how someone would do that. Yeah, I mean, I think the audience isn't interested in just watching people come and do a job. We've found, I mean, we are looking for a fascinating character who's coming in and maybe they're doing a job. Again, I get, we're happy to do, and I guess I'm just speaking for CBS here, but you, know, you can extrapolate it maybe to other broadcast but you know under the dome is purely serialized but you know elementary people we hear time and time again they are coming to watch a character who they find fascinating and they're watching a relationship unfold between he and a female watson the likes of which they've never seen it has nothing to do with will they or won't they it's literally there's it's he's almost not human and so to watch her chip away at him and see if he can become just slightly human. Is there anything to connect with there? And watching him have a point of view on that um, is what the audience is coming for. If it was just a guy named Sherlock Holmes solving a crime every week, I, 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 don't, think, I don't think our audience would, would care either. But um, I don't know, they're endlessly fascinated with him, with her, and how the relationship is moving forward. <laughs> Um, we're going to throw to your questions in a bit here, so start thinking of them. Um, but uh, I, this, I guess, is probably we'll start with Liz, but um, you've done a lot of shows, worked on a lot of shows where it's just stories about very normal people having sort of normal lives, um, even if there's sort of a melodramatic soapy aspect. Um, but it seems like that's kind of going away. Like, like we had, we've had 30-something My So-Called Life. Um, now we have Parenthood, but no, like nobody really watches it. Um, rectifies another I do. show. <laughs> yeah. I watch like, it. Rectifies another show that's about just very normal people in normal, almost normal situations. Um, do we think there's room for these stories? You know, these sort of kitchen sink dramas, or is it all very heightened realities right now? I mean, I don't know the answer to that for sure. I, of course, selfishly, <laughs> since it's kind of what I do, I would love to think that there's room for them. Um, I, I miss that um, in network television. I. I don't like that parenthood is the only place I can kind of feel like I can tune in to watch something, not that I'm a parent, but that it feels like it resembles my life. Um, So selfishly, I I really hope that there's room for stories like that on more than, um, I mean, we kind of talk about it, you know, I talk about it with writer friends all the time, and ABC Family is kind of doing in some ways what, the old WB did, or even uh, what CW was more when I had Life Unexpected on it. Um, oh, my God, I forgot the name of the show for a second. Um, <laughs> that was sad. <laughs> I'm like, uh, um, but, um, yeah, you want to think there's, there's room for that. And, I mean, Girls is an example of a show that isn't particularly high concept, but is very true to reality. So I think that there's a way, and in a way, that's the high concept of it, that it's so real. So uh, maybe 
that's the way that we'll go. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I would selfishly really love, selfishly as a writer and even more selfishly as a viewer, love to believe that there's there's room for that um, on all the networks. I know, you know, Life Unexpected was an example of a show where I developed it originally with ABC Studios. And at the time, and I don't think it's probably changed, ABC Network wasn't that interested in having a show on the air that had a teenager in it. Um, that was very different, for instance... I was Winnie Holzman's assistant on Once and Again. That was a show with plenty of adults and plenty of teenagers, much obviously in the vein of 30-something, where everybody kind of got full-fledged stories and got to be real people. So when you talk about the pendulum swinging, I, I would love to see it swing back. I think there's totally room for those shows, and the reason that you don't see them is that you know TV for a long time has been largely a pitch-based medium, and those there's no hook in those pitches. They're execution-dependent, you watch Parenthood because it turns out it's awesome. But if I just, t- it's a story about a family. It's like, well, I've seen those. I have a family. They're not very interesting. So <laughs> I think you're seeing cable is driving a lot of people to do more development on their own to show something with, like there's a spec market for TV, which didn't exist even, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. And I think as people prove it on the page, first and they're not just selling what doesn't sound like a mind-blowing concept then you will find more and more of those shows i think will start to make their way on yeah we, without meaning to sound cynical I, th- I think the i think it's both it's partly it's the pitch problem it's partly the network's perception of how to market a show i, I think you talk to somebody like john langraff who will constantly cite the number of shows that are available scripted shows that are available not even to mention reality shows but uh uh, that you're, you, now that you're in, depending on how you count, 150, 170, nobody can watch this many shows. And nobody can market this many shows. So things that are conceptual, things that are, oh, my God, I've never seen that. I would argue Girls is not really, for most people's experience, about ordinary people. I think HBO sort of took uh, marketed down on the shock value of this is what girls that age are really doing, saying how they're behaving. But uh, I, I think... Any any cable network is sort of thinking in large part of how do I cut through the clutter? How do I make you pay attention to this show? And the market's really different than it was 10 years ago. There's there's so much more out there. How do you get attention? And I, and I think that's so prevalent on, on networks' minds. And as people who are selling to networks or, or creating for networks, you got to put yourself in their head a little bit. And that that's the problem with the ordinary people thing. Uh, I'll just I'll I'll ask Mark how you guys have handled this on Rectify because that's that obviously has a hook, but it's also about a, a guy just returning to ordinary life after being in prison. Um, yeah, Re- Rectify. I don't know how many of you've seen it. Is a, is is very much a, a family show, and not a lot happens. And we, uh, I'm, what I'm particularly thrilled about is we have the courage of our conviction in terms of our storytelling. It's, it's very methodical. It's not, there's nothing fast to it. There are no bank robberies or car chases. And it is about, quite frankly, a guy who's reinserted back into his hometown and his family after 19 years on death row. And it's really not so much about him, but it's about the family, the town, all around him, everybody who's compromised. And... And I think it you know, comes down to what we're all saying. It's none of us is really talking about plot or action. We're all talking about character. And if characters, 
I started my career, I produced 12 movies of Barry Levinson. The first movie we did is Diner, and nothing happens in Diner. It's just about characters. And if you're fascinated by characters, you can sit there and watch two people, you know, sit and have dinner together and talk, and you're, as an audience viewer, you're fine. I was going to say, um, on the Bates panel yesterday, someone asked a question about to carry about parenthood for, versus Bates, and it was interesting. They were saying... Does it feel like such a departure because Bates is such a darker show? And she was saying, I don't feel that way, (laughs) strangely. She was saying they both just seem about, like, people and families trying to kind of do what's best for their family. But, of course, the difference in selling it is that Bates has the hooky marketing aspect. Um, And I think that even now when, when myself or other people go to pitch pilots, I mean, one of the first things even our agents tell us to think about is, well, how would it be marketed? I'm like, I don't know. Which, by the way, you take... <laughs> I'm struggling name, to think of an idea. <laughs> I mean, if you take Parenthood off of Parenthood, that show doesn't happen. Like, the fact that it was based on an existing piece of material, even if nobody had seen it, it was like, well, all right, that's a justification for doing a show about a family, mm-hmm. that it was already a movie. Okay. Um, uh, pivoting off of that, and this will be my, my last before throwing to you guys... Um, Two really big movements right now are these anthology miniseries like Fargo, True Detective, uh, American Horror Story, um, and also adaptations, uh, The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones being sort of the, the big dogs there. How has that, uh, how has that shifted your, your, how you think about these things and how do you approach an adaptation or one of these season-long stories that's sort of a standalone season and then you do another story in the same universe? I mean, it sounds thrilling. It sounds exciting. I mean, you can do... I was talking to Noah about this last night. Like, they, they realized they could literally do anything. There were no rules, and if there were, then they tried to find them and bend them just because they could. I mean, that, that sounds amazing. Also, having spoken to some of the people involved with True Detective, there's a little bit of, like, crap. We, like, totally have to reinvent the wheel. Like, you know, there, there is what you have is a template for amazingness. So that's a great bar to set for yourself. And then, you know, and then you like don't have any of your Lincoln logs. I don't know what, you had transportation. I don't know what I'm, anyways, you know, you just, you got to, you have to be amazing in an all new way. So I think they're both thrilling and challenging. And as far as the, you know, the, the adaptations of it, I mean, I think it's the same thing that you saw and we'll continue to see forever. It's just, it's, it's a scary, huge risk to put millions of dollars into something at everybody's time and say, you know, people will come. So you look for anything that indicates to you they would be predisposed to come, these books sold, or that people have heard of this movie. And when you don't have that, it's a huge leap of faith to just say, I don't know, we'll try it. And I think, uh, you know, when those don't work out, people really run for the cover of what, what, do you, what have you read? What can we do? Any thoughts on that from a, a network or studio perspective? Or? You go ahead, David. Well, I, I, look, they're, they're two different questions. I think that the adaptation thing, I think Kyle's exactly right. That's people, and we, and we are certainly as guilty of it as anybody, trying to chase a title that will help you sell a show. Um, Bates Motel, you know, whatever, whatever it is. So uh, I think valuable titles it's it's you know we are now in a a marketplace where it's hard to get a show on the air there's a lot of people trying trying so something that has pre-existing awareness that's really valuable 
Um, you know, obviously, try to, it, not every title, not every movie or graphic novel or uh, is a series. So sometimes a title is not going to get you all the way there. And so, so, so a lot of titles we look at, it, we don't end up pursuing. The, the the anthology thing is is you know is fascinating, and you know I don't think we would have seen True Detective on the air if it, that had been a pitch. I think the fact that that was a spec that then was packaged brilliantly and went out to the marketplace with all those people involved got that piece to be the bidding war that it became but had had nick run around and just pitched that idea i don't think we would have seen it uh i I think that uh american horror story wouldn't have gotten on the air without it coming from ryan uh so i I think that many of i think many of the networks are still suspicious around anthology and i think anthology is incredibly dependent upon auspices upon who's involved and having something that has enough star power behind it. Star power can be a writer too. Uh, that makes people think, well, we can still market it in a second, third, and fourth season, even if we have to change casts. So I don't know that that's going to become the new thing, but I think there will be writers and, and actors who will be attracted to it that will allow some of these things to continue to be interesting experiments. Okay. Uh, questions out there from anyone? <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of killing pilot season in that I just feel like it's it's a crazy like demolition derby that doesn't do anything good for anybody. That said, I don't think a single one of my shows would have advanced in a world where there was no pilot season exactly for the reasons that you're saying. Because if you're going to make very few bets, you can try and place them on the things that feel the surest, the most marketable. And, you know, I've existed at this fringe where it's like, I don't know. Let's let's see what he does. And like, you know, I'm the the last script picked up, the last show picked up to pilot, and the last pilot picked up to series, because it's it's like let's see what happens. I, I have no idea why the third people didn't understand what was going to happen based on the previous two, but <laughs> you know, so I've really benefited from that. And I think cable again, uh, I think all of this is trending badly for me. But you know. Cable is, I think, going to collapse into the... Essentially, you've funded a huge number of channels. You know, you funded the Sundance Channel without knowing you were doing it. It just existed. And then the Sundance Channel was like, hey, we exist. We should put some stuff on and see if people come over here. But when you have to pick out your channels, you're going to stop saying, I don't know what's the Sundance Channel. What is it? A dollar a month? No way. So it's not there to incubate something like Rectify. So... I think the economics point to something where everything collapses and it's like the film business. You know, you need tentpole stuff and then there's this fringy stuff that I think gets even fringier. So we've benefited from the crazy system that we have. I just think the economics of the crazy system are going to take those benefits away. Yeah, I guess I can only speak to my specific situation, but we CBS is very traditional. We have a pitch season. Everybody's writing their pilots around the same time. We pick all of our pilots. We pick up, you know, say ten drama pilots within a, a week of each other. We're shooting them all, and 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 we're shooting them all at the same time. We pick them all up for upfronts, um, and certainly we see that it's a flawed system. We know that we're casting at the same time. We're casting against ourselves. We're casting against everybody else. We see it, of course, and yet there is something. I'm waiting for this part. There. <laughs> The part is that I was able to buy 50 things in three months and get 50 scripts from 50 working writers. I got to shoot 
10 pilots. I got the, I got the green light to shoot 10 pilots all within a week of each other. And four of those things, five of those things, this year six of those things got ordered to series. The dates forced decisions. Mark, how long have you had 30 different films in development with no dates forcing any decisions? There's something incredibly satisfying about the decisions being made and these shows going forward. And for the ones that aren't going forward, they found out swiftly as well. But the audience, something that I buy... You know, everything that we put on in September is something that, uh, that we bought the prior August and, and September. And that, to me, is pretty incredible. And again, we've seen when you aren't forced into decisions in features, you can be languishing in development for, for 15 years. And that, that's not existing where, where I work. And not to uh, argue or debate, I just feel like the dates also drive compromises. And the more you're trying to shovel through that system the less people like yourself can attend to any individual thing. You have ten shows that you're putting out fires on instead of four. You have the actors that you loved spread over ten pieces of material instead of four. Like It's not that I think the, the, the dates and the pressure, which I actually think is incredibly helpful in TV, otherwise we would all do, we would be very slow. I think writers are predisposed to want forever with it and you know it's been demonstrated that amazing television can be made on a schedule i just think the bar is so much higher in tv now that stuff that's sort of good enough or the best of the the scrum that we created it's not as good as the stuff that comes from a different process and i think that ultimately the viewers are going to drive the change because the things that result from the traditional pilot season, I just I don't think they consistently reach the level of things that come from a different perspective. David, did you you look like you had something to add? Well, the only thing I was going to say is I, I I think that that we're in a marketplace that will have some networks that will be shooting traditional pilots, cable networks. Even though they aren't bound by a pilot season, most cable networks shoot pilots. Not all of them. Most of them do. Uh, and I would suspect the next head of FBC will probably be shooting some pilots. Right there. Yeah, I think so. Kyle might speak to this better than me. but <laughs> um, Yeah, I mean, you know, when I... There's definitely a dramatic structure. I mean, I kind of come from a very... Most of my work has kind of been in network television, not cable. So I have a very kind of methodical network structure. But you can break down. I mean, the first season of Breaking Bad, if you want to look at, like, perfect storytelling, episodic structure, the third episode of season one and the sixth episode of season one of Breaking Bad are the most... I actually, when I worked with R.J. Cutler when we were starting Nashville... I actually went into his office and broke a Breaking Bad episode on his whiteboard just so we could both look at perfect television structure and then be like, okay, let's start. So, yeah. I think third in the six. I'll have to go back and look at those. <laughs> I think they're perfect. It's, to me, it's like perfect television. It's the basement. You know, it's, it's a definition of, of drama. 
You know, drama, and, and you talk about, I used to do this in, in movies, you know, there's, there's the big drama, there's the, the passenger who has to land the 747 when the pilot's had a heart attack, or there's drama when a character just has to decide to do the right thing, and there's no, there's no action to it, it's just, the, he or she will spend a, a, an hour trying to decide what to do, and that can be as riveting as a big, big, uh, big sort of dramatic point, and, and I think that's what so much of television is doing right now. It's all dramatic in its way. It's just it's some of it is very, very sort of imperceptible. Okay. Uh, right there. Um, <coughs> killing is a perfect example, but I wanted to ask Kyle. Uh, when you are very involved in a story and you obviously love it, you can tell by the way you tell it, uh, and the show gets canceled, as a viewer, I would love to hear what the writer has to say about this is what I You mean just releasing it like, here's what we would have done? Uh, you know, we did, I don't know, for, we did it until I felt like it's going to be sad if that's my thing, but we used to, you know, we would screen the unaired episodes of uh, Lone Star and then I would sort of pitch out the rest of the season. Cause just, you know, that one, the, these other shows, we, we got to make them all awake. They happened to air them all. Uh, you know, it feels like you got it out. You know, that really was... We were just getting the end of the season worked out, and we were super excited about it. And we thought, like, you just, you feel like you have something up your sleeve, and then, like, your magic show gets canceled. So that one, that one hurt a little more than the others. But, yeah, you, you sometimes wish you could still do the trick for people. Right here. Yes. Oh yeah, I, I think I, I, the whole. I, I can't speak to. I don't. I don't know that it's that extreme in broadcast or how soon that out. But certainly in cable, you know what? You know we used to think of as absolutely. You knew you were going to get thirteen. Well, now that not that many networks even do thirteen. Now it's more closer to ten. And then you know, True Detective was eight, and Mark Show Rectify was six. And and uh, you know I, I think that networks want to spend less money uh, and especially as, as there's experimentation with going straight to series but maybe not going straight to 13 going straight to six or or, or uh, you know now that that long form thanks to Kevin Costner has kind of come back and people are looking at mini series slash limited series which sometimes are backdoor pilots sometimes aren't uh, you know the idea of doing a four hour that could be a backdoor pilot or a six so yeah I, I think that that networks want to spend less they want to spread their chips across the table uh, so I, I think we're seeing shorter orders all over the place. Yeah, you're going to see it in broadcast as well. I can think of examples uh, for all of us, including CBS, that are in development or, or frankly, shooting. Uh, oh, I was going to say it's also interesting with Bates. That was a show that was initially picked up for six episodes. They arced it out, wrote the episodes. Six, if, you, if people watch the first season of Bates, you'll remember episode six felt like a season finale. And it's because it was... But then the network fell in love with it, and they were like, do four more. And they're like, oh, no. And so it was a big decision. Do we try to go back and retroactively re-break the stories to still make six the now episode 10 finale? 
but they didn't. Um, they kept it intact, and they said, okay, now how can we add kind of this four-episode arc that's going to feel even bigger than this humongous thing that happened in episode six? So when you watch structurally the season one of Bates, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> and, sorry, they fell in love, not, not with the ratings, they just fell in love creatively with the, yeah. sh- with the scripts or the shot episodes? What was it, do you know? Yeah, I think it was the scripts. Wow, I think great. it was that they fell in love with the scripts. I don't think it had, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Next question. I can't really see over here, so, okay. Somebody over here is asking a question. Um, it seems like the success of shows like on HBO and AMC aren't bound by traditional fall, spring, uh, fall and, you know, starting spring kind of season. Do you think the, the, the broadcast networks will ever move away from the seasonality of, uh, mm. you know, just, just so, like, when pilot season happens, you're not all competing? Totally. Uh, absolutely we're just trying it trying it this year everybody's trying it um there are certainly going to be fall launches but more than ever what you aren't going to see is what traditionally was you know you you air 13 and you have breaks and and reruns and then you come back for your back nine you're going to see a lot of playing around with Within, within time slots, putting on original shows in there, maybe for shorter orders, coming on at different times of the year. And to your point, not just kind of fall, then mid-season. It's, it's much more of a year-round... We talked about year-round development, but it's much more of a year-round launch strategy that extends, obviously, to summer. But um, our, the president of CBS recently <laughs> said she's retiring the phrase mid-season, and, and I get it, and, and scheduling is fi- and marketing are following through. It's just ca- kind of let's find strategic places to put these shows on. Yeah. Up next. All right, I'll ask one more. Um, we talked about all these different trends, all these different things. What are, where do you think... TV drama is headed. What do you think the future is? Is there is there a show you can point to, or a trend you can point to, or just an area that hasn't been explored yet that you think is is you know needs to be explored? I'm literally making this up as I begin to answer your question. <laughs> like uh, so I think someone asked Kadams yesterday about like the Kadams verse, like the idea of. You know, you talked about sort of uh, writer-driven, sort of, you know, th- these things. If Joss Whedon did a series of shows that were interconnected, that the characters in one knew the other, you know, you, they've been crossover things, but they feel sort of false. You know, I, I feel like that the Marvel universe of television is something that hasn't really been explored, that is very ripe to... You know, then you have the halo effect of the first to the second. Like I can see both how creatively it would be really exciting and economically how one could feed the other. Any other thoughts or answers? <laughs> okay, that's tough. <laughs> uh, there's somebody way in the back there. I, yeah, you had your hand up, I think. <laughs> That's cool. So, um, All of them. So, <laughs> so I, I know I kind of see the appeal of network and broadcast television just because obviously it's broad. Lots of people, lots of the potential for millions and millions of people to watch. Um, at the same time, meanwhile, Netflix still feels a bit niche. But on the other hand, if you're looking at Netflix, you definitely 
Sure, totally. I mean, there's obviously everything to recommend. Uh, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> it's weird. I get I get emotional when people ask me why I keep doing network, and it's like uh, the people who gave me my shot. You like want to pay them back. Like you feel like you owe them a good show. Wow, this is terrible. I'm so sorry. Kyle, you have had shows on ABC, NBC, and Fox. You're sitting next to somebody from CBS. Oh, we tried to buy all of them. You can finish out your bingo card right now. No, no, no. There's, yeah. You, you, when Kyle Killing comes through your door with a pitch, you buy it. He is obviously one of the best writers in town, and we have tried to buy pitches from Kyle Killen, and we will continue to try to buy shows from Kyle Killen. He's the George Clooney of of writers, so. Like... That is extraordinarily kind of you. Could ask you a question, like honestly, like seriously, at this point, like why? Because why you would you? Go, like, wouldn't you say to yourself, "No, he's we like him and he's kind of good," but like that's not going to work. Like, why would we do that? No, those we we CBS. Well, your show's going to work on CBS. Oh, well, the other guy, Kyle. <laughs> there is cable, Kyle. <laughs> sit, we could talk. Sit back, David. <laughs> we could talk later. <laughs> Oh, there's somebody way in the back with the beard. I'm not sure what you mean. Describe, describe the show that you would... Do you mean literally high art the movie? I was going to say, let's do that adaptation. <laughs> I think there's room for that. <laughs> I, 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 let me just... I think probably like narrative free, you know, like there are art films that have basically no narrative um, is sort of the, a frontier that TV hasn't really done. Rectify is very low narrative, but it has a narrative like Treme had basically no narrative. I, I think, I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, there obviously HBO tried Treme and the Sunday. I mean, I think it's, it's people who either need to experiment to get noticed or the people who have the luxury of experimenting because they have other things that are extraordinarily successful. I mean, I think in TV you find universally the people who make it love it. Like, the executives love it, the presidents, like, they're in it because this is what they care about the most. And they do see everything, so they are excited by things that are different. And we all want to be of some, a part of something that changes the way we talk about the form. It just... Treme is a good example. I think there are ceilings for shows like that, just like there are very hard ceilings for, for art films. You know, there is a crowd that they appeal to, and there are other people who just, they, they feel like you're confused if you think that is a movie. Like it just doesn't reach them or, or it doesn't do what it's supposed to for them. I think Louis is art, high art. I think Louis is actually making tone poems, uh, and he's actually breaking the form and t- telling stories that don't have any kind of traditional narrative and are incredibly visual and evocative, and I can't believe what he fucking does every week. So I, I think he's actually doing it. On that note, we are over time, so we're done for the day. Thank you to our panelists. You. Hope you enjoyed. Now leaving Nerdist.com.